Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Ocean's Eleven, the 2001 Steven Soderbergh film. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Writer Brian Bittner. Hello. And editor Alex Calleros. Hello. So Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorite movies. I think maybe it's the first heist movie I saw, but I immediately then became obsessed with heist movies and wanting to both make them, but also be in them. Mm-hmm. Like I want to just be George Clooney wearing a suit coming up an escalator in that one shot. Of course. Like everybody so, does. Right. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so much fun. And it might have been my first Steven Soderbergh movie that I saw. Wow. Um, but there's just so many things I love about this movie, the style and the energy of it and the cast and the meta humor is mm-hmm. just so up my alley. So I want to talk about all these things. Um, but yeah, I'm curious for you guys. Did you guys get to see this in theaters? When? What was your first experience with this? I saw this in the movie theater. I kind of, I already was a heist movie fan. So my dad was obsessed with The Sting, which is like the most dad movie ever. <laughs> like, and he would tell us stories about how it played, The Sting played for a year in his hometown theater. Oh, wow. Because, you know, there's one screen or whatever. And if they're still selling tickets to a movie, they're just going to keep showing that movie. So, and this movie, I feel like, inherits a lot from The Sting. Like, the dynamic between George Clooney and Brad Pitt in this movie is sort of very similar to Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Never thought of that, but Mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, Makes a lot of sense. So, I got so excited when this movie was coming out. Um, And uh, yeah, went and saw it in the theater. Rocked my world. I think I went back and tried to see it again the next day, or at least that same weekend, and just have basically been obsessed with it ever since. I have the soundtrack. I love the soundtrack, too. It's just a wonderful movie yeah Brian. what about you when did you first see it i'm pretty sure i saw it in the theater i weirdly actually can't remember because i remember then the next thing that happened was my roommate in college said hey can you download oceans 11 for us we want to watch it because <laughs> I, I knew how to do that stuff so i did so sketchy i know uh but then i just i had oceans 11 so i was able to watch it whenever i wanted mm-hmm. kind of and and uh then i definitely saw 12 and 13 in the theater because yeah. by then I was I was in on whatever they were going to do. It holds up really well on rewatch. Mm-hmm. Like it's one of those things that you can continue to like mine for all of its lines. Stuff blows by you the first time you see it. So no, it's rewarding sure. mm-hmm. yeah. when you watch it again. And it's yeah. also just a it's there aren't a lot of movies that are just so fun that I think I could yeah. just I could put on Ocean's <laughs> 11 once a year for the rest of my life and not get tired of it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, Alex, when did you first see it? I probably saw it in theaters, but but like Brand, I can't remember actually. It's kind of just I just know that I've I've always seen it. Like Ocean's <laughs> Eleven is part of my memory and I don't know when it happened. It made such an imprint on me because it just felt like it defined cool for me for mm, totally. like the rest of my life, maybe. Like it was just like this is what it means to be cool is to be these people like walking around looking like this. Yeah. With oh, this yeah. music playing and with these shots and this is this is it. So I, I feel like it just was very like defining to me as far as like what it looks like to be a cool person in a movie is like Ocean's Eleven. I think the thing that helps create that is their, this particular movie's version of Vegas, which mm. is not at all how Vegas is, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Like right. we live in LA, so we've all been to Vegas and it is difficult <laughs> at the best of times. It doesn't feel this <laughs> yeah. effortless and wonderful. Yeah. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah, it's not a magical world of fun and cool and money and just beautiful people and all of that stuff you so don't have think... the shot of them sweating on the sidewalk trying to get from <laughs> between one sucking on like big slopey <laughs> yeah. shape of the eiffel tower well, even that scene where they're at the fountain at the end like if that's anywhere nine months out of the year it's a hundred degrees uh-huh. at night like waiting 15 minutes to watch the bellagio fountains i tried it once and i was like i can't wait for i can't be out here it's a hundred degrees it's midnight it's terrible yeah and i think what also because i think it also kind of defined cool for me as well in a lot of ways and i think the reason it worked on me is that it's like a it's a self-aware cool Mm. like i think Mm -hmm. there's just so much self-aware humor in it and i think my like one of the funniest things that just tickles me to no end is that toward the beginning when george clooney goes and recruits brad pitt and they're at the poker Mm -hmm. game with all the tv stars and topher grace is there and then at the end of the game they all walk out and there's screaming fans that come and swarm topher grace (laughs) ignoring brad Brad pitt and george George clooney walk by and that's just like that i don't know this is the funniest thing in the world to me i don't know why it just tickles me and of course the line where george clooney's talking to them he says oh making the transition from tv to film that must be hard (laughs) (laughs) see i don't think i got that at the time Uh but yeah but so there's a lot i didn't get at the time i mean that was one of the things even just watching it this week 
it was fun to revisit it and I don't think I've really seen it much since I was a teenager. Mm. And mm. all these movies I saw when I was in middle school, high school, I loved them at the time, but they get, I get so much more out of them now because yeah. I've just, I'm an adult and I've lived a life and I know what adult things are now. And it just, there's so much more to get out of these kind of childhood movies. And I always love revisiting them and realizing, wow, there's like three more layers to this scene than I ever picked up on mm-hmm. yeah. in my original viewing. I think the thing about what you were saying, though, Michael, and you reference this too, is that the movies are self-aware to an extent. You have to do it with a light touch, which this movie does really well. Like that scene is subtle. It's not a plot point. It's just like this cute moment where everyone swarms the TV stars. Tover Grace's expression where he's just like, oh, man, paparazzi <laughs> found me again. Rats. Like, it, But it's in the background, right? It isn't a plot point. Whereas right. contrasting it with later on where the series ends up going particularly oceans 12 mm-hmm. we don't like that kind of meta humor when it gets thrown in our faces mm. in the same way it doesn't feel as delightful like the you know that sense of discovery where you notice something meta that the characters don't seem to notice right. that makes you feel like smart and clever and it lets you in on the joke but when they're beating you over the head with the joke like the Julia Roberts thing and Ocean's Twelve, you're just like, I'm, I don't like this. Mm. Yeah, it is, that is an interesting distinction because I, I remember being in the theater for Ocean's Eleven and the the fun that everyone was having in the audience, and I remember being in the theater for Ocean's Twelve mm-hmm. and the, like the silent confusion and frustration that people were <laughs> feeling. Because yeah. if you haven't seen Ocean's Twelve, spoiler alert! But there's a part where Julia Roberts, as part of the con, they bring her in to play a character that because her character in the movie looks so much like Julia Roberts, they're making her pretend to be Julia Roberts right. in the movie in the heist. And it's just like yeah. super meta. And like, it's weird because Ocean's 12, I did not like when I saw it in theaters, but I watched it again, like at 3 a.m. in college with my friend <laughs> one night. And it was like the best thing we'd ever seen. Sure, sure. So I have fond memories That's of funny. it. And I, I like it now. But yeah, Ocean's 11 had, I think, like you're saying, Trish, it had that light touch that made it this kind of magical, fun experience. We, we talked about that moment, the Ocean's 12 moment on, I think, our Shaun of the Dead podcast mm. where uh, we talked about, are the characters aware that zombies exist right. in pop culture? And uh, and I, so the reason I liked that Ocean's 12 was because I feel like it's been done before. I think on Mork and Mindy, Robin Williams was in town, so he was playing Robin Williams and Mork, and people right. were confusing the two. Uh, but I just feel like, when have you ever seen that in a non- silly comedy uh blockbuster type movie and i just thought it was it was so funny especially the way they build it up with um matt damon saying did you ever notice she looks don't ever say that you know <laughs> and and then they think so i just i thought it was like a fun stupid thing but i also understand why people think it's annoying i feel like you have to go into it like tuned to that wavelength right and if you're on that frequency it's like oh this is fun you're just doing this the whole movie mm. but if you're just sitting down to watch a movie it's frustrating so michael at 3 a.m was in the right wavelength uh, yes for mm-hmm. oceans 12 100 yeah well and i think too a big part of that had to do with the passage of time which was that they didn't expect oceans 11 to be the huge enormous hit that it was necessarily like obviously they were packing it full of stars but they weren't supposed to be three of them you know what i'm saying so in the passage of time, these people, a lot of these actors and, and the franchise itself got bigger and bigger in reputation and sense of expectation and prestige. And I think that kind of weighted down some of that humor where it was like they really. So, for example, in Ocean's Eleven, the moment when Julia Roberts walks in is so late into the movie mm-hmm. And it's because it's true to the characters. It feels like that's organic to the story. It feels like that's when the character, you know, it's this reveal. They weren't able to do any of that for Ocean's 12 or 13. It was so all of these expectations, all the studio, all the money that was being invested. They only got more expensive. People only got more famous. So they weren't able to do this like sort of playful thing with it. It had to be super on the nose well but kudos to Soderbergh especially with 12 for saying I just made a blockbuster movie and they want me to do a sequel I'm going to make kind of an European art film out of it sure I mean yeah there are things I really like about 12 yeah and even even though 13 takes place in Vegas it all three feel like very different movies even though they have different writers all three of them but they have the same editor cinematographer director cast but they just feel like each movie has its own uh sort of voice in this trilogy that feels tied together yeah, I agree. That's what I do love about Soderbergh. I mean, I don't love all his movies, but mm-hmm. I really appreciate just 
he really doesn't seem to care. You know, he's yeah. he's like, I'm going to make Ocean's 12, Ocean's 12. I love directors who are able to work in and out of the studio system and just do their thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I really respect that. Something I love about his uh, direction in Ocean's 11 is I love that it feels, I always thought, oh, Ocean's 11 is kind of the Soderbergh doing a blockbuster movie. Sure. But then rewatching it, I noticed there's there's so many shots that feel like they are from The Sting or from some 60s spy film, these weird sort of harsh zooms or wide zooms yeah. and things like that. And so it sort of feels like a blockbuster movie and an art film and a throwback film all at the same time. It just manages that really well, which I think is really impressive. That scene where they're, they're there for the demolition of the hotel and uh-huh. everyone in the crowd is looking like turns to look at the hotel right. and then they George Clooney and Matt Damon are still facing forward that's straight like 60s uh-huh. like spy kind of stuff that wide shot yeah it's awesome yeah yeah and i was paying attention like there's so many like wipes and like split yeah. screens and just the wipes, editing yeah. like there's so much like character and fun happening and and so i was watching it trying to kind of picture like how do how do you plan a movie like this like right. this, because the style is so you know non-traditional like how do you know like for sure the shot you want to dolly in and then zoom in really tightly onto this and only beyond this while we're hearing this dialogue and then zoom back out and there was just a lot of really cool choices that i think kind of all worked together to create this kind of like modern retro fun yeah like yeah what life it's got a lot of personality be. yeah, yeah. Like, like, like watching it again I, I was like oh he's doing a lot of interesting formal playful choices here more than i remembered um and it just yeah i felt like wow you're you have a personality in this movie in every level from the editing to mm-hmm. the cinematography even to like the weird like frame rate change for a minute when he's like chasing yeah. matt damon on the subway mm-hmm. and right. like suddenly it's like like slow shutter speed yeah. something yeah it was really interesting just he's just kind of like yeah i'm gonna do that why not totally <laughs> well you talk about the word cool and i think this movie's a great example of it's cool because it's not trying to be cool it's just mm. cool people having a lot of fun and that's kind of what makes it cool it's sort of they're they're unafraid of just kind of being silly and having fun with each other and that plays as cool so much more than if they said let's make a really cool movie where we all look cool you know, right. it's kind of there's like a confidence in the the silliness you mm-hmm. know like like mm-hmm. brad pitt always eating and you know, <laughs> right, right. george clooney is kind of silly in this movie right. you know it, they're, there's they're not trying to be super serious about anything it's very goofy actually a lot or, of the time or is it uh oceans 13 where they're watching oprah no uh yeah it's 12 i think where they're watching oprah and they start crying just the long shot of them watching and then <laughs> did, did he really get <laughs> yeah by the way i feel like like brad pitt always eating is another thing that just like stuck in my mind from this movie uh-huh. and like the like shape of like his facial structure while <laughs> chewing like i feel like i know it way too well that from this job, movie like yeah. i feel like there's like bones in his face that like i like are like seared in my brain because he's just chewing so much in this movie i feel like and, the like, way he like wipes his face yeah. is yeah. also kind of imprinted in my head well, but brad, brad pitt's like well he the... has a tattoo on his hand in yeah this movie, oh, right. which also draws attention to when yeah. he's shoving food in his mouth yeah. brad pitt is the king of holding things weird and pointing right. weird yes. you know yeah. he's, he's carrying coffee he's holding it with two fingers and the other fingers are spread out <laughs> and, and he's he's holding his his uh whiskey and sort of putting against it up his against forehead. his forehead it's yeah. just it's like every time it, pick up that pick up a screwdriver he's like okay and you're like nobody's ever picked up a screwdriver <laughs> like this yeah i find myself holding my whiskey like that a lot uh, when I, i'm I, just like i definitely did uh, that after i saw that <laughs> <laughs> but going back to what you guys were saying about um the some of the style choices a lot of that originated in the script like a lot of those things of, you know, people talking over images of other things or like mm. we're, we're seeing something that doesn't match up or that doesn't make sense to us or whatever. Some of that is just really clever editing, but some of that is in the script. The script is executed at with so much confidence and swagger, which, you know, Ted Griffin again was saying, I think it was in the original Ocean's Eleven, although I don't remember that movie very well and I can't. I also don't remember this interview that I am trying to reference very well, to be real. But he was saying he was drawn to characters who have a rapport with each other that almost have their own language right. and how mm-hmm. much fun mm-hmm. that is to watch yeah. and to try to almost decode or decipher the way that they're communicating, which obviously Danny and Rusty in this it's movie are so amazing. amazing. Yeah. The way that they somehow telepathically communicate. Right. We should um, probably. Yep. 
And then we, yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And the scene where they're like, we could always buy tomorrow. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that yeah. one really stood out to yeah. me this time watching it. Yeah. Like I crack up every time with yeah. all of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other day I, my dog looked at me funny and I said, what? You think we need one more? <laughs> you think we need one more? All right. We'll get one more. And he just stared at me. And I wondered if it, you know, I'd heard rumors that Brad Pitt and George Clooney were improving their way through some of this. Mm. And there is that to a degree. But a lot of those most notable moments of just subtracted dialogue right. that communicates that effortlessness of this relationship, that's on the page. It provided a really, really good roadmap for Soderbergh, where he didn't have to sort of invent the wheel stylistically. It was on the page, a lot of it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I feel like the casting of all the mm. characters, I feel like they all have that. Like now that you've sort of said that I'm, you know, Casey Affleck and Scott Can, Scott Con, Scott Con, yeah. Con, yeah, them as you've, like you've heard the of James Con, right? Uh, he was in that one season, the mob a movie, father yeah. and a something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're close. Yeah, um, but yeah, I feel like just I think that is part of what kind of makes it so much fun to watch. Is like mm -hmm. there is this. You can feel the connection that they all have, and Don Cheadle with his silly accent. He, he, he tried. Poor Don Cheadle. <laughs> I, like, I wonder how like in like intentional the like kind of weird accent was. I think I think it was Don Cheadle trying really hard to do Cockney and doing a, a passable job, not yeah. a bad job. But... At least the version of the script that I read, it didn't call for a Cockney. Oh character. no, that was that was Cheadle. Yeah, that was Don Cheadle. Yeah, okay. He decided the character should be Cockney, in you know. <laughs> Not a very moderately, no, very bad, not effective way. I mean, Lockstock and Snatch were more big. At the, sure. Well, I guess, I don't know if Snatch came out yet, but Lockstock was big. Because I think he was just trying to be one of those characters. And in fairness, I like the decipher because the slang that he ends up going for does lend to that element of you want to decipher it. Mm. He's like, Barney, Barney Rubble, Trouble. Trouble. Yeah. That's a fun <laughs> moment. Yeah. The execution, not successful. <laughs> yeah. It was a little rough, but I, but I appreciate it. You know, I get what they're going for yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. So the other thing that I love about this movie is how it works as a heist and the way, you know, the way the information is revealed mm -hmm. about the heist. And I feel like it almost did it. Like, can you do it again? Like, I feel like mm -hmm. Ocean's Eleven just nails the, like, we know enough that we know what they're doing, but we also don't know what they're doing. So we want to know more. And, and the payoff is so satisfying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do remember as however old I was, 12 or whatever, seeing it being very confused about what happened. I'm actually still time. a little confused. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those movies where you kind of need a graph of just here's right. every single thing that happened. Yeah. There's some logically, if you really do sit down to pull it all apart. There are some logical things where it's like, why did the briefcase with the explosives have to go in separately? Could Yen not have carried them in? Because we see he can right. tuck them into his like mm. thing. So why why did he have to? Why, and why did these have to happen simultaneously? Could mm. we not have put the briefcase in a couple nights ago? Right. And Definitely could have. Like, if they knocked out all the power, would the power come back on that quickly? And would that have not screwed up more than this and that? But but I feel like this is kind of connecting back to the kind of goofy, playful like mm -hmm. nature of it. Yeah. I right. think it creates this world where it isn't hyper real. So it's like it's okay. Right. You, you go but with it. Not, you go with it. Because yeah. it's like this is a fun movie. Right. We're yeah. going to have to be overanalyzed. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Ted Griffin did invent some of the rules about how Vegas works. And, you know, he said oh, yeah. it, the, the whole thing about uh, Casino has to have 10 times the amount of money or three times, whatever it is. No, that, just, uh, just every chip they play on the floor. Yeah. And and uh, during the commentary, he said, yeah, I made that up. And Soderbergh said, really? <laughs> he, said, he said, I've been telling people. <laughs> I thought it was true. And he said, the, the, real, the reality of how the vaults, how the money is kept is really uninteresting. It's a lot of men with armored cars and Uzis just carrying the money straight out of the casino into somewhere else. And that's it. And it's not so you have to kind of make these this rule set but in that rule set you have to stay true to it but i feel like oceans 11 is the kind of movie where because it's fun and playful you don't care if it's not right airtight logic look there's an emp at, uh -huh. the, yeah. at the center of this plan uh -huh. that we know is not real does not exist
And I, I'm looking at just like the design of the EMP device. This <laughs> it's time. like it's in like, water. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's liquid. so goofy looking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just go yeah. to the science place and get the EMP device. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, just that, I think a lot of that goes back to, they set out to design something that was cool, fictional. Right. And cool. Right. And so you really get that sense of like, obviously, casinos aren't like we're only shown like the most expensive most pristine sort of very exclusive version of vegas which is i don't know i suppose possibly exists but i think probably it's accessible you know to certain people if they well actually now that i think about it i think i read that the main cast lived at the bellagio yeah they actually in like villas at the Bellagio. So yeah, there's probably so, a place for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I didn't know there were villas at the Bellagio, so I guess maybe this does exist. But Although, I don't care what casino it is. If you're just on the main floor, there's a lot more people in Donald Duck t-shirts and shorts. And right. So <laughs> exactly. many flip-flops. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing, talking about the heist itself, um, watching it again, I realized, because I had forgotten actually a lot of how it goes down. Mm. And there's a lot of times where you you know, because the movie has not let you in on the entirety of the plan, yeah. you as the audience think it's going south. Like this is going to be irretrievably bad. And then it reveals multiple times this is part of the plan. And I think that was just, I realized why this movie is such a joyful ride mm-hmm. is that it gives you that roller coaster, you know, just continuously. It's like, oh, wow, this is, it's over. This is not, they're not going right. to recover from this. Oh, wait, that was part of it. Brad Pitt is the doctor. You know, like uh-huh. it, it, it does that, like, I think like a few times. Yeah. Yeah. Three or four. Yeah, like like serious moments where like, you're pretty sure this is what it looks like for the heist to fail and is part of the plan. And it got me every time. It was just very impressive. And I think that's what is a good heist movie is that you really do feel like things are not going to work out. And you realize it's, it's, a very clever part of the plan in a way you could never have imagined. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the most interesting things that it does, John Truby has his 22 steps to storytelling, <laughs> which is like, yeah, it's very exhausting. specific yep. and exhausting. <laughs> but it was really interesting to read that and to go, so many of these things happen to the audience, not to the protagonist, because most movies right. are about a protagonist trying to overcome an obstacle. Right. Ocean's Eleven is about a protagonist who already knows what's going on. It goes right. pretty darn well yeah yeah like, <laughs> like like if you look at danny ocean he basically has no character arc no plot arc or anything like that he's just there but we as the audience are being taken on this ride of the protagonist yeah. there's a crisis moment that we are you know think is is the crisis moment there's uh, all these moments that happen that we think happen so we are being sort of taken on the journey of a movie mm. even though what's actually happening in real life isn't a lot of these things and i think that's such an interesting approach to to uh, writing a screenplay, right because it, it actually mostly goes according to plan for mm. the characters right it's Which, really it's us who are stressed out right exactly yeah. you know sort of the main audience surrogate i guess or we're put in a very similar position to linus really like linus is kind of the person that they choose to leave in the dark about a lot of things concealing information from other characters like it it ends up sort of being contrived like why do they have to lie to linus you know and and honestly you know danny ocean shrugs like he's like why can't you just tell me things and he's like (laughs) but also because you're the audience linus like basically But I also love that it like just sets up this trend of like kind of like teasing Matt Damon. Like that is sure. one of the parts of Ocean's Twelve I like, where they just like mess with Matt Damon. I don't. Know. Anyway, continue. Uh, I'm sorry. The, yeah, the you meet have with to have Matt a rookie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean he's that rookie character that they they're kind of gonna josh him, you know, and yeah. whatever. So you you buy it in that sense, but it really is just the movie actively lies to the audience. Mm-hmm. It's right. not even just that they don't tell us something. It's that they're lying to us. The scene where uh, Carl Reiner Saul goes to get up and he then he like sort of staggers back and right. he's by himself in his room. Okay, hang on. Okay. But he but he could be actually nervous. He could actually well, be Well, the movie establishes that Saul actually does have health problems. That's true, but that's but all of that is lying in the sense that or it's bluffing, right? In the sense that they're like a trying a poker game. Almost like a poker game. <laughs> it's bluffing. Um, well, yeah, but they they specifically give Saul health problems and show them to us, even sure. when he sometimes is trying to hide them from other characters, right. so that that moment is imbued with some sense of stakes and real desperation. Right, but that's not lying. 
that's that's setting up it's a, like a on the, it's on the border i think it's kind yeah. of on the border because it's like i'm not mad but, at the movie for yeah. lying <laughs> right. i think it lies very effectively <laughs> it kind of goes back to the hitchcock quote that maybe i made up because there's not <laughs> no one can find there's it there's currently no evidence that he ever said this but young michael remembers watching a behind the scenes like this is history of movies and psycho and blah 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 and i remember hitchcock saying something to the effect of never trick your audience let your audience trick themselves and i feel like i like that as a, a defining that kind of gray area where it's mm. like we're not the movie isn't purposely mis it is purposefully yes, it is. <laughs> misleading us but not in a way that we couldn't like figure out what the truth is and there's like this like little like wiggle room there where i feel like you can't overtly lie to the audience but you can set it up to be like look you're gonna think this to set up yeah. the proper reveal mm. mom i want to be a screenwriter <laughs> <laughs> this hitchcock guy really knows his stuff <laughs> is that your young michael yeah, yeah. The young michael yeah wow. <laughs> Voice just constantly cracking, <laughs> yeah. just cracking twenty four seven. What do I sound like? Oh boy! No. But uh. but that is that I, to me that's the most egregious moment is the one where because as long as other people are in the room, you buy that the characters are sort of performing for each other, and that it, it allows you to have that moment where Linus is like, "Why are you messing with me?" And right. I was like, oh, "It's fun," um, or that lovely, amazing moment where he's. Um, Rusty's giving Linus advice and he's like, don't do this. Don't do this. Look up. You know, they're, they, you, they know you're lying. Look down. They know you don't know the truth. Like that whole thing. And then he gets called away. He says, he says and the most important thing, don't ever. What? Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All of those I buy as long as characters are interacting with each other. But the moment where Saul gets up, staggers back and Rusty is like ducking behind the door frame because he, he's worried or whatever. He doesn't want Saul to know that he saw Saul in a moment of weakness. That to me is the most like this movie lies. It lies. It's not lying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. I think, I mean, I think it's fine in Ocean's Eleven. I, I'm totally down with it. Sure. But I do think, yeah, it, it does bother me in movies when a character is alone and they do something that is like revealed later to be like the fake thing. Right. But they did it by themselves with nobody watching. Right. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does happen once in a while. Yeah. yeah. Or, or this is similar, but the Hobbit trilogy, which just, just to get, <laughs> just like Ocean's Eleven, just like, <laughs> just to get, um, uh, Ian Holm and Elijah Wood, uh, in the movie, they bookend the trilogy as him telling, uh, Frodo a story. Bilbo is telling Frodo the story of, let me tell you what happened when I was young. Which would be fine if the Hamba trilogy didn't multiple times go off and follow other characters around. Right. Like, here's the conversation the bad guys are having with each other about what they're going to go do. And I'm thinking, well, is this framed as Bilbo telling Frodo a story or not? Because you kind of can't have it both ways. You can't have this right. omniscient point of view and then frame it as a character saying, this is an experience I had. You mean the Hobbit movies like, aren't perfect? Are, are flawed? <laughs> we, we can go into that another time. But <laughs> but they don't make sense. What? That was a specific thing. I think that's one thing that you can't be subjective about. Like that just objectively doesn't right. make sense as opposed yeah. to a lot of things with the Hobbit movies where we might think they're bad, but maybe not everyone agrees. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah, I think that that's like a good kind of standard, like you were saying, Alex, like if someone is alone and they're keeping up a performance, like that doesn't make sense. That's I feel like that's cheating. That, right. That which, I would which squarely put into the lie. Trisha, you brought up about Mark Ruffalo and uh, now you see yeah. me. Um, and, uh, and, and that's why I think that's why I think it's not lying with Ocean's Eleven with Saul, because he genuinely does have health problems. So it's. It's tricking the audience. It's saying we're going to give this guy health problems, and he also have, happens to have to have, have a health they, problem right. in the. So, band. so yeah. it's absolutely messing with the audience. It's tricking the audience, but it's not lying to. Not them. as bad as Mark Ruffalo alone. In exactly, could he have been practicing how he's going to look well, sick later? That's what Trisha said. Yeah, I do think there's an extent that we see that Saul is kind of a method actor. Right. Because right, there, there is that moment where he's doing his accent, his Lyman Zerga accent. My name is Lyman Zerga. Yeah. <laughs> and, but we see they're, he, they're just lounging around in the hotel room and somebody goes, Saul, turn that off. And he goes, I'll turn it off when I'm ready to turn it off. 
he's doing his accent. So they do give you that hint that he's also just a method actor. So they kind of create that sense of like, he might act this way when he's alone to stay in character. Yeah. So maybe it, maybe it actually is and totally like, later, not cheating at all. When he, they're in, it's like revealing that he's like one of the SWAT team and he's in the elevator. It like cuts to him and he's like having a hard time breathing. So mm. I feel like it does kind of, you know, they're showing, look, he has health problems still. It's he just not, wasn't mm, dying right there. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. They're like, just a, just enough wiggle room, I feel like, to maybe. I will say, Carl Reiner can do anything. Oh, I'm seriously. happy about it. Oh, <laughs> he's such a delight. He's so good in this movie, too. I mean, everyone is, but. So speaking of, like, the SWAT team thing, and I don't, I don't know if we want to go too deep into this, but, like, I am still a little confused about, like, <laughs> what's happening, where, and when. They have a video of them like with half the money and that's the fake video of them in the vaults with like masks on moving around half of the money lying saying that the rest of the money is already gone in a van and the reality is they're just sitting in the vaults on all of the money waiting for the fake SWAT team to arrive you've got it yeah and okay and yeah. okay and then and then the SWAT team has a bunch of bags with them that mm -hmm. nobody notices but right. well, they're swap about bags. They're swap bags, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They're lunches. You know how the swap. And when they call nine one one, it like doesn't go to nine. Like right, it goes yeah. to Livingston. It goes to Livingston. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I do feel like the the one sequence where I think it becomes really confusing is where Rusty's on the phone with Benedict saying, "This is what's going to happen," and it kind of sounds like, and it kind of plays to me anyway that like this is what's going to happen this isn't what's happening right now right but like this is what we want to happen we're setting up the events that are going to transpire but then at the end of the call it's like oh i guess that actually did just transpire and i feel like that's the only part it's that a kind time of disconnects problem for me. well and I, I think i think part of the problem for me is that like the confusion was when did the in like in their fake story of like only half the money is still in the vaults like there's no explanation of how the other half of the money got out into the white van like, yeah, no, yes, there is. Is uh, there? Yes, uh, casino personnel carry it up because Rusty tells uh, Benedict that they have to send armed guards. They're going to load the bags into the elevator. Mm -hmm. The guards are going to come pick the bags up. The casino personnel are going to load them into the back of the white van. Oh, I see. okay. So that's how they get up there, and then they drive that. the van to the airport, and it's a remote control and bloody right. Bad. Okay, yeah. 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 It happens. I always, I always just get mixed up during well, that part. Yeah. But it is a logical time problem, though, because at the end of the call. Benedict gives his like run and hide asshole speech. And then we see that the phone is already down and they've already gone. And so it's like, right. When did the bags get right? I think what? that's, that's yeah. why my brain yeah. like yeah. couldn't understand like it's when like, it how all long happened. were they on the phone? Cause then he goes, I have complied with your every request. Right. It's like, when did that happen? When just yeah. now, while we were just chit chatting, I like to imagine that they Benedict and Rusty were just on the phone silently for right. like 10 mm -hmm. minutes while that was happening. Just <laughs> like, you still there? Yep. Just waiting. <laughs> It's the old movie trope of someone having starting a conversation and then it cuts to a different location and they're having the next line of the, the conversation. The next line of the conversation. Seriously. I also like how it dates the movie when Julie Roberts says, I don't have a cell phone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's an insane moment. <laughs> I do not have a cell phone. What does that mean? Yeah. One of the things I love about the high sequence is how it jumps between perspectives and how Benedict kind of becomes a character that we are with when the heist is actually happening yes. right. and kind of the way they just kind of feather him in where like you just see him on the periphery earlier on and then you kind of get to know him better in that scene with George Clooney and Julia Roberts where mm -hmm. he comes and inter like interrupts. It's kind of cool how they kind of build him up to be a character so that then when the heist is happening, we can jump to his perspective and experience it from his perspective. Yeah, I, I think who's the best character to use to hide information from the audience? It's Linus, because he's the only person on the team who they don't trust, and there's a reason they're hiding information from him. Then later, who's the best character to reveal information to the audience? It's Benedict, because mm -hmm. everyone else knows what's going on at this point, except for Benedict. So as he figures it out, we figure it out with him. So it's a cool shifting of perspectives there. It's very elegant, the way that the, this is put together, because as you guys were pointing out, it is essentially an omniscient POV, mm -hmm. but it's so selective in the way that it, it jumps, it like bestows knowledge on different characters from moment to moment that it's just so effective. The way that the reveals are ordered is really important as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the one that I always come back to as just like, not a bad idea, but reveals in the wrong order is the village. 
Oh, right. Mm. <laughs> it's like there are like three or four secrets, right, in that movie or something. Like, the, you know, one of them is like John Hurt knows about the monsters. Then it's like the monsters aren't real, da, 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 you know. Yeah. Then the, John then Hurt's it's, in the village? Who am I thinking? That is John Hurt, isn't it? Am I crazy? I think so. William yeah. Hurt. William Hurt. There oh, we go. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah. It something, was a hurt. Something hurt. Yeah. yeah. Um, William Hurt, yeah. So, but the reveals are in such a way that it robs all of the like tension out from under the climax where she has to face off with that creature in the woods. Because mm. by that point, we know the creature isn't real. Mm-hmm. Even though she doesn't know that, but it's like, we do. So we whatever. do. Yeah. yeah. I remember there was some laughter in the theater during that scene. It was really sad. I, I, rem- yeah. I specifically remember my friend and I laughing out loud when the credits rolled. And we're not those guys. Like we weren't <laughs> wow. doing it to be to be jerks. We just both actually laughed because we were like, that was so dumb. Well, I think it was like the part where she's like, I killed the monster. Like when she when she gets back to the like oh man the room at the end yeah. and like the parents in the background are like oh no <laughs> it's like people are like laughing <laughs> yeah it definitely doesn't work but here it's like sad and you know it's like very sad but like it was yeah. it was it was unfortunate how it played as like almost humorous <laughs> yeah but here they do such a nice job where knowing that danny is still in it doesn't rob anything out from underneath of Saul's collapse, which doesn't rob anything out right. from underneath the bank heist itself, which doesn't, you know, like it, it they are so well ordered, like a row of dominoes right. that you still have a million questions, even after each reveal. And that's why the movie is able to trick you so many different times. Right. Because you're like, well, they were lying about this thing, but I still believe this other thing is true. Right. Right. And they set those up really, really well. And then they just like tip them on down. I was impressed by like, upon this viewing how much i had forgotten and how much mm-hmm. it just it tricked me all over again every single one i was like oh you got me yeah <laughs> it's really good mm-hmm. yeah when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply thinking about the different perspectives made to me jump back to kind of the beginning of the movie where we're meeting yeah. the 11 people and just how much fun that is and i feel like they very efficiently established like this is what these characters are and like these two brothers are actually just this one character and they'll only ever exist in <laughs> the same scenes together. Um, but it just, yeah, it's, I feel like it does all the heist things so well where like the first half is all the like setup and let's meet the people. And then midpoint is like Julia Roberts comes in and everything is more complicated. But yeah, it just, it's, I, I really appreciate how much fun that is. And I feel like it's a thing that movies do a lot where they try to have like fun intro character sequences, Mm -hmm. but like it feels like forced in some ways. And I think this one just feels so like fun and effortless and like the way like, you know, one kind of connects to the other where Mm -hmm. they're scoping out one person while they're talking about the next person in the background, you see things happening. Just a very well executed sequence of of doing that. Well, you mentioned Julia Roberts coming in and complicating everything. And that's that's what's so enjoyable about this movie for me, because I sometimes I get a little bored of just, you know, it's going to be a super cool heist movie. Like, yeah, you're going to be very clever and all that. And I'm down for that. But it's so much fun when a, a new element's added that you did not expect, right. which is the Julia Roberts element. And it's, I mean, it's, it's broadcasted at the beginning of the film. You know, first scene, he's talking about his wife left him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just once she comes in and there's all that tension and the great first dialogue scene between her and George Clooney, I just, I'm so, like, I'm re-grabbed I mean, by the movie. amazing. Yeah, yeah. it's but, such a good scene. Yeah. And, and Ted Griffin talked about, he said he, he loves the idea of movies where you don't realize until the end why this character was doing it, what he was doing. Right. Um, like the, he actually mentioned the straight story, the David Lynch movie where like the old man drives across yeah, yeah. on a tractor to, to um, our lawnmower to visit his brother. And he said, it just inspired me of the end. You go, Oh, okay. Now I sort of understand what mm. this was all about. Uh, and he actually said he was about halfway through the script before he even realized the movie was actually about Danny and Tess and not just about writing a fun, which is interesting because it feels like that is the, the I mean, heart that, of that's the movie. why it's special. You know? Exactly. That's, and, that's, yeah. and that's really the final reveal that is so satisfying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also what a great lesson that he was halfway through the script before he realized that's right. what the movie was. <laughs> it, yeah. The screening process is uh-huh. a long and winding one. Yeah. <laughs> well, but going back to what you were saying about character introductions, this movie is so good because it 
gives time to the ones that need time and then like sort of you know fast forwards through some of the ones that we can just get a little bit more quickly and easily so obviously the intro the opening shot of the movie where it starts on this empty chair it gives you this feeling of like waiting you want to know who this person is that's going to come in and fill this chair and they create that like even brief moment of suspense where it's just like who's going to walk in here and in walks george clooney which is (laughs) already like a power move to open your movie Uh, and then he sits down and says his name like and then starts going into this um you know speech basically where he's not trying to impress the parole board really like he is so composed he doesn't feel nervous about getting out but he's tricky there's a lot of subtext there we see the whole thing he's introducing himself but in a way that doesn't feel trite or like too honest or overly explaining we can tell he has secrets it's so good and such a smart choice on Soderbergh's part not to cut away from him because in the script they yeah. do they cut to the parole board they actually they shot that too I'm sure yeah. they did yeah it's just really really smart editing and then think too like how long is that intro scene with Rusty it's long mm. they it's a whole big long scene where we get to know who Rusty is same thing with Benedict they spend a ton of time setting Benedict up even before we meet him mm-hmm. and then when we meet him this like Damon's speech about Linus's speech about he this guy's a machine. He does uh-huh. this and this and this. He remembers every valet's name on the way in. Like he speaks four languages, all of that stuff. It's just what a fun sequence. I oh, love that sequence. Yeah. yeah. And then and then they spend more time on um on Saul as well. So like the yeah. bigger players, mm-hmm. you spend the time on those guys. You don't need as much time with the Malloy brothers or with Livingston. Even so, those are really effectively written, but they're nice and short. It's a really the allocation of time on character intros right. for a movie that has so many characters. Yeah, definitely. Really, really smart. Because it could be a problem if they felt like they had to kind of, you know, equalize the time between all these mm-hmm. characters, which, yeah, that would not be good. Yeah. <laughs> so, Soderberg, really unfocused. Yeah. Soderbergh was saying on the on the commentary that he tried to make sure everyone showed up enough. So if you need a character to walk across the screen, well, we haven't seen Livingston in a while. Let's make mm. him do it. But he, uh, I think it was Ted Griffin who said he sort of felt like there were these four stories going on, mm-hmm. which was Danny getting back tests, Rusty kind of taking charge, uh, Linus getting up to the task, and Saul going on one last, yeah. uh, you know, one last adventure, basically. Mm. And it's like the other characters don't have important character uh, arcs, arcs. Yeah. yeah so th- you need to represent them but you don't need like you said Trisha you don't need to uh, shove every like a D and an F and a G you know like a bunch <laughs> of stories that they're mm-hmm. all doing some big thing mm-hmm. uh, also I want uh, just a montage of Andy Garcia walking like he has a oh stick up in his <laughs> Like, like so fascinating the way things to do in Denver when you're dead. Godfather three, the yeah. ocean three. Like every he's always walking, always Garcia. yeah, in a nice suit walking along. I love his physicality mm-hmm. in this. How just sort of like upright he is, and like you were talking about like uptight, really, uh-huh. but so purposeful and driven. Like he really embodies because he has to, right? He has to be like a formidable enemy. Mm-hmm. And so he has to embody that just by walking on screen, basically. And he does it so well. The white suit jacket is like the power move there. (laughs) Right. Watching it this time, kind of going back to the love story between Danny and Tess, I I feel like the actors also did a ton of work. Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't know that it makes any sense for Tess to be in love with Danny or Benedict. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Just thinking about it kind of like objectively she was with danny didn't know he was a con man he got arrested went away for five years and then after he pulls a con on her current boyfriend now she realizes she loves him see i always thought she knew he was a con man for like a long time i think she was i honestly thought she left him because he got caught not because he was a con man Uh like because she was saying i had to get away from you know i had to leave new york to get away from what happened but not that there's, I don't think there's like a moral problem with him being a con artist. It was just he like sort of destroyed their reputations by getting caught. Yeah, I, I think my own personal headcanon is just basically, you know, they, they genuinely had a great relationship and they had issues and it was tumultuous and it and it fell through. And then now she's dating a guy who's fine and she doesn't maybe realize some of his darker qualities. So he's just, she's sort of casually dating Benedict almost, uh, where you can see her sort of frustrated with their relationship. But even though the script never tells you, I just, because that's how movies are, I just assume, oh, they're in love. Like they really wish they were together, but right. they just have. But that's where it does 
sorry it yeah. does help that it's george clooney and julia roberts because sure. like you feel the chemistry right and like when he leans in to give her like a kiss in the cheek uh-huh. it's just like yeah like yeah you can't deny that and so it just fills in all the blanks right there yeah <laughs> but, i feel like it was just like one of those moments where like if i was just looking at objectively the things on the sure. page i'd be like wait question mark question mark question uh-huh. mark and also she moved from new york and then moved to vegas and then dated the most, most rich man, man right like vegas? that's yeah. you're doing pretty well i don't know well see i always thought that he Not i always well, thought but that you're finding people impressively continue i mean she is julia roberts so if anybody can find the richest man in vegas and and somehow get with him i mean probably she's just a girl standing in a casino (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i like the sort of part about her being an artist and an art Mm. collector Mm -hmm. i think it gives the character some dimension but i also think it's designed to be kind of an image of she herself is being collected in a way it doesn't Mm. feel like benedict cares about her as a person except as she's like brilliant and beautiful and she's just sort of there to be on his arm right and which is what we see in that moment i i don't know if it's enough to be like she's gonna leave him forever but we see in that moment where he's willing to give her up in the sense that he feels like he has the ability to do that or the right to do that as though she's a piece of property right and so that sort of is the premise that she has been he's a rich and powerful man who has just sort of picked her up because she was a beautiful object mm-hmm. right i still feel like my favorite part my favorite julia roberts performance though is when she's playing not julia roberts in oceans 12 oh she's playing like, Tess. yeah i'm just as you were like talking about that i was just picturing her like with bruce willis pretending to be friends with oh, bruce willis yeah, yeah, i don't yeah. know when I she really gets like so excited 12. When, she, when, when bruce willis walks in the <laughs> room she's like again. oh my god right <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, he was all supposed to be in this movie too. Wasn't he was he? supposed to be. Danny. Oh, was he? Yeah. Bruce oh, was supposed yeah. to be Danny. Oh, interesting. And uh, the Owen and Luke Wilson were supposed to be mm-hmm. the Malloy brothers. Oh, that could have been fun. Which, which I always remember thinking. I just wish uh, Ben Affleck played Turk Malloy because you already mm-hmm. got Damon and right. Casey, and I was just like, right. oh, that would have been perfect. Obviously, Scott Conn is fine. It's great, but I just thought that would be really fun to just be like, let's get the old gang back together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it did start to feel like as in 12 and 13 they just started honestly kind of throwing any actor at it that they were like you know who we could probably get <laughs> yeah let's get right. that person in here so they just kind of started doing that but it is interesting how this movie just sort of has become a landmark for the heist genre really mm-hmm. like wanting to make sure that we say like they may you know there have been a lot of heist movies since oceans 11 and none of them have been oceans 11 truly right, right. like think about even not no shade or not too much shade on the sequels but just think about something like the new not new anymore but like they made the italian job right after this Mm -hmm. and then they made like a few other sort of slick heisty movie kind of things national treasure i guess we could put into that (laughs) overlapping venn diagram (laughs) although i think some of the heisty bits of national treasure are maybe the best bits in it Mm. um but yeah they it really sort of created this new revival of like heist kind of thing and there is nothing that works as well as this it all feels too contrived or let's go back to now you see me that is trading directly on prestige from oceans 11 like let's get a bunch of magicians wouldn't they be great people to pull off a heist right and it doesn't work at all and they try to hide information from the audience and they do it in such a way that ends up making it ineffective completely Mm -hmm. so not that it didn't make its money because i'm sure it did it's also just that a sequel so yeah there's also the lightning in a bottle magic of just like yeah. these actors this time. Yeah. You know, it's just, you can't replicate that. It's just what yeah. it was. Yeah. It really is just total a, a list all around, which yeah. is really cool. Yeah. yeah. And Soderbergh came right off of traffic and Aaron mm. Brockovich to make this movie. Right. Just respect. <laughs> like picked this, picked up this script and really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Ocean's oh. 11 is special. Yeah. I also <laughs> like that there are, no guns in the entire yeah. trilogy uh, to the mm. point where at the end of 13 when the night fox pulls a gun on matt damon and he goes a gun <laughs> you know? and, and i nice. like it because it's almost this this meta thing of just saying like didn't you read the handbook like <laughs> this is not how we in this community operate and right. that's really not cool yeah. and i just think that's really impressive yeah, yeah. Th- there is this sort of honor among thieves mm-hmm. yeah very yeah. you know unrealistic thing where and Soderbergh has said this is my this is my only movie where like nobody gets hurt basically Mm. not just physically hurt but like the only people who get like hurt 
Benedict? Why? Because he lost a lot of money? Right, like, right. He's still fine. Still super fine. Yeah, no one really gets hurt in this movie. And thinking about how instead of, it doesn't mean that there aren't stakes. Just because someone's not pointing a gun at somebody. And I think that there are a few like down and dirty heist movies after this that tried to make it about that. Where it's like, someone's going to die. Or like, you don't need that. At least not if you're in this very stylized, very clean, very stylized very wealthy world you know people rich people don't shoot each other they write checks <laughs> <laughs> yeah truth that's also interesting that it was 2001 mm, and like yeah and a more innocent time in the world right, right. Like in, yeah in a lot of ways which i think is probably why it was able to be the special thing that it is yeah yeah i, I think it was early still early aughts when they made the bank job with jason statham mm-hmm. which is a heist gone wrong movie and hmm. To my recollection, I have not seen it recently, so this might or might not be a spoiler, but to my recollection, like, everybody dies. Mm. Like, the heist goes so bad and everybody dies. No, it isn't, is it? (laughs) Uh, But that was, like, three years later, makes total sense, given the state of the world, how quickly fun in Vegas went straight to now we're all going to die. Yeah. So, but I actually do, I do, I do want to say I liked Logan Lucky, which Mm. is, you know, Soderbergh trying to return and make another heist movie. It's not oceans 11 but there's a thing he sees in heist movies that he's able to extract and execute really really well so i find soderbergh to be one of those fascinating directors where you just are never sure what he's gonna do yeah it's kind of it's kind of exciting but i think it's also kept me from ever being totally on board the soderbergh train Mm. just because i don't know what the you know there's not a consistency it's all over the place right sort of like danny boyle in that way yeah like what are you making next danny boyle i don't understand but i'm on the danny boyle train no no, i'm (laughs) saying same same i've I've, I've loved enough danny boyle to be like i'm here for whatever you do next soderbergh i'm like i'm really curious what you're doing next but well he has a movie coming out right next year Mm -hmm. a netflix movie yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah very excited we'll let you know how it is yeah (laughs) hi everybody it's trisha Just wanted to take a quick moment and thank you all for listening to Beyond the Screenplay. If you like the podcast as much as we like making it for you, we would really love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want, it would help us out a lot if you could support us on Patreon. For just $2 a month, patrons get extra content like mini episodes and Q&As. And it's a pretty cheap price and it really, really helps us a lot. So thanks and back to the episode. Well, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take away from Ocean's Eleven. Alex, do you want to start? Sure. Um, we kind of touched on this before, but uh, the setup of Terry Benedict mm. and just just how uh, formidable an opponent he is. It's just always a good lesson for me of, you know, he is very smart. He's very, he's actually kind of paranoid. He's always like mm-hmm. one step ahead of, you You feel when he's talking to these characters, he's onto them constantly. And he's noticing details that are going to maybe, you know, give up the plan. So I think just always the lesson of make your antagonist like the hardest possible antagonist for the task at hand. And he he's perfect for that. And Andy Garcia plays him perfectly. And so, yeah, that's my lesson. Nice. Yeah. Trisha? I really love how this movie relies on silence and like sort of what we were talking about, the characters speaking their own language and then how that doesn't always necessarily have to look like dialogue even. Mm-hmm. I love this the scene near the beginning and it's in the script written just like this where Rusty goes, you want to knock over a casino? And Danny just holds up three fingers. He shakes his head and holds up three fingers, <laughs> which the performance <laughs> is amazing. But that's and then Brad Pitt starts to take his next drink and then stops. Exactly. <laughs> he like stops with his teacup halfway to his mouth. But that is a, what a brilliant moment to use to establish the relationship between these two characters and how like in that poker scene, their mouths are just sort of twitching and their eyes are just kind of sparkling at each other. <laughs> so much bromance. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Listen, yeah. if, if anyone ever says... understood me as well as Danny and Ru- Rusty understand each other. Right. It's very I'll beautiful. Be it's gorgeous. Yeah. The script says Danny's eyes sparkle. <laughs> <laughs> at Rusty. <laughs> no, but just sometimes that looks like banter and we see that between the two of them. Sometimes that looks like silence. And two, you know, sometimes thinking about Danny and Tess, how all of their rapport is dialogue, but it is still sort of its own language, how they fire back and forth. Just thinking about how you can 
deep in a world or deep in like the relationship between characters. It doesn't have to be stilted. It doesn't have to be honest. It just has to be something organic that exists between the two of them. And it doesn't have to be words. You can just let the characters look at each other or gesture or mm. whatever. Yeah. Awesome. Brian? I actually want to talk about my lessons for Ocean's Eleven by also talking about how Ocean's 12 and 13 do or don't do the same thing, uh, which is I'm looking at the emotional through line of the movie and also uh, the informational through line, like how information is, is delivered to the audience and that that very difficult balance between we're hiding information, but also the information we hid from you doesn't feel like cheating. It feels like, oh, okay, I kind of, I knew enough of that. To, and I think Ocean's Eleven does it really well where the emotionality builds as Tess is introduced and then there's more scenes between Danny and Tess and it gets more and more, oh, that's what this movie is actually about as the information is also being delivered to the audience. Ocean's 12, I remember seeing it with, the, um, with a friend. I think I'd already seen it once and I went and saw it with him. And I said, what do you think? What did you think? And he said, I just, I don't like a movie where there's no way I could have figured anything out during the movie. Mm. And I think Ocean's mm -hmm. 12 sort of hides so much information from yeah. you at the end. You're like, okay, fine. And also the emotional moment in that movie doesn't happen until the end. You don't even realize that um, Isabel's father is Lamarck and he's still alive right. and blah, blah, blah. So it's a really lovely moment, but it doesn't feel earned because it wasn't something you had been waiting for. It's just something that sort of shows up. Ocean's 13, with the way it handles information, it, there's less uh, trickery in that movie. There, there's fewer mm -hmm. surprises in that. So it handles the information fine. You're like, okay, everything I was watching was real, but also there was some other stuff going on behind the scenes, fine. But the emotional through line is great at the beginning. I love that it's Saul has his, uh, you know, has his heart mm -hmm. attack and then they're going after it. They say, we're going to go after Willie Bank for this, and blah, blah, blah. And you feel great. It's, it's a revenge movie and it's personal. And then that kind of gets lost throughout the movie. Like they come back mm -hmm. to it, but it doesn't. And it pays, pays off at the end. But it feels like you've, as opposed to Ocean's Eleven, where it keeps building. In Ocean's Thirteen, it sort of sucks you in at the beginning, and then it kind of stops being about that anymore. So I think that it's it's just interesting to follow those two those two things and how the different movies handle it. And I think you can sort of see using just those two pieces how why Ocean's Eleven is as strong as it is, mm -hmm. and why the other two movies are fine but not quite as powerful in in delivering those two those two elements. And we have been trying to crack the code of what is the rule right like when do what is the formula when right. do you show it when do you not when do you hint at it how much do you hint at it we've pulled oceans 11 all the way apart <laughs> uh -huh. looking for that formula and i'm not sure there is one it's really hard to find this but i think about this when i play video games i like puzzle video games which is i want to solve a puzzle and go Oh, okay. That I didn't realize that thing was there. And I think it's the uh, the Zelda games and the Resident Evil games I remember playing as a teenager. And I couldn't figure it out. And I would look it up online and I would go, what? Yeah. <laughs> I had How to go that find the top hat and stick it on the other thing. Yeah. What are you talking about? And, and I right. think that's really what I think about when I think about how movies control information is mm. I want to go, oh, and not come on that doesn't make any sense you didn't give me any <laughs> and, yeah. and how you do that objectively like what that line who knows but right. it's just trying to to elicit that response from the audience and mm -hmm. not the other right i feel like it's it's what you're saying puzzle design mm -hmm. which i feel like you could study puzzle design probably for your whole es life escape rooms mm -hmm. are kind of an interesting example yeah. of that right now yeah yeah I feel like the the potentially fictional Hitchcock that young Michael <laughs> watched, he knew how to do it. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's a genius. <laughs> uh, pretty sure that's not how I sounded, but I'm okay with it. Yeah, so I think for me, the lesson I took away from revisiting Ocean's Eleven was kind of like I said earlier, the, the importance of perspective and how to use perspective mm -hmm. to reveal the information. In my writing, I tend to very much like stick with one perspective. Like there's this one protagonist and the entire story is usually told from they're in every scene and they're only seeing what we only see what the protagonist sees. And I have trouble sometimes like jumping out and remembering their other modes of storytelling. And I think seeing how Ocean's Eleven uses that you know, omniscient point of view and how you can use that and be selective and create like fun moments that couldn't happen in any other way. Mm. I think that was like a nice refresher and a, a kind of a push to me to like think about telling stories differently than I default to. So, yeah. But also not just switching perspective 
arbitrarily. Right. right. Yes. All exactly. very skillfully. Right. Yeah. yeah. Intentionally doing it for the most impact for the audience. That also makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All those things. Well, let's quickly say what we've been watching recently. Trisha, you want to start us up? Sure. I recently uh, got a chance to watch the movie The Souvenir, which just came out. It is by a British director named Joanna Hogg. And it stars Honor Swinton Byrne, who is Tilda Swinton's daughter. Hmm. What? Yeah. Oh. And she, as you can imagine, has a really interesting face. And <laughs> no, she's like, it's one yeah. of those things where it's that actor who you can't look away from kind of thing because mm. you're just like, you look fascinating. Mm. She looks fascinating. She is really talented. And the movie is set in the 80s. And it's about a real life young filmmaker played by uh, Honor in this movie who fell in love with like a much older, almost like a film professor of hers. And but he has like a drug problem and like it becomes this really like abusive relationship. And um, the actor who plays that character is Tom Burke. And then obviously Tilda Swinton is also in it playing her own daughter's mother playing herself i guess in a way but character um it's really interesting it's it's sort of one of those stories where it's painful to watch because you're just seeing like a young person who thinks that they know they think they're in control of their life they think they're making their own decisions and they're just caught in this loop and so it's sort of hard to watch but it's lovely and elegant and really well directed so recommend hmm. what well, name again the souvenir awesome brian what have you been watching i went to my favorite theater in los angeles again to see a 35 millimeter uh screening of sunset boulevard yeah, yeah. yeah which i had not seen in over 15 years so it was really fresh to me i remember the broad strokes but i didn't remember the actual individual scenes yeah and uh I, it's such a good movie and i just think billy wilder is one of those people who 50 years later his films feel so fresh and relevant and it makes me wonder was he just that ahead of his time or did just hollywood decide we need to make more movies like billy wilder and sort <laughs> this of this is how we make movies yeah <laughs> exactly um but i just think it's 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 such a good example of a movie that is just really funny and entertaining and engaging but also takes dark turns in a way that feel sort of heartbreaking mm -hmm. and uh and earned and it sort of it really plays with your emotions in an interesting way yeah and yeah it's it's awesome so good yeah i should really revisit it because mm -hmm. i also haven't seen it in a very long it's time it's haunting yeah mm -hmm. yeah cool the, the only thing i'll say is gloria swanson's performance which is incredible yeah in 2019 it's like I would really love to see the 90% version of that, you know, <laughs> just like maybe take it down. A, but it's also fascinating to watch a character who the character thinks they're performing. Right. Of so course, I think that, yeah. so it's, you can get away with a little bit more of an over the top performance when the character you're playing is trying to give a performance. And, and from I think a different that, era of yeah, like acting of theory. Course, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Alex. So I recently, for the first time, watched The Thin Red Line, yeah! which had been on my like to watch list forever. Um, and I watched it on my big 4K TV with like wow. he with headphones on for like full immersion. And I'm so happy I did because yeah. it is, you know, basically I realized I've only seen now that I've seen that one, I've only seen three Terrence Malick films. Um, and I'm a huge fan. So it's weird. I haven't seen more, but I, I, I love The New World. Um, mm -hmm. I appreciate Tree of Life. Um, I can't I never fell in love with Tree of Life. But Thin Red Line was up there for me, along with New World, as far as just, wow, what a cinematic experience where I feel like I've never seen a war movie that yeah. put me in like the emotional, sensory, almost like surreal headspace of being in, you know, at, at, one, at one time you're in this beautiful tropical environment, mm -hmm. it becomes idyllic paradise. Um, you're just a normal person because you've been drafted into this war along with other other very normal people who aren't like hardened soldiers. And then you're being given insane orders by some remote general to go like charge into machine gun fire and just the complete surrealness of it all. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the beauty of it and the and I love I just love how Terrence Malick is ha doesn't have a cynical bone in his body. You know, he is just the most heartfelt 
almost embarrassingly genuine filmmaker with these characters that are just kind of bearing their souls and you know Jim Caviezel his like his eyes in this movie mm-hmm. I can tell why Mel Gibson wanted him to be Jesus you know like it, there's just so much in this movie that touched me so deeply and I would just highly recommend it if you're down for a meditative reflective long, long. Three hour, <laughs> yeah. three hour experience, um, and, and I'm also just a big nature lover. I like just being, oh, yeah. being soaking in nature, and that's basically what his movies are. Oh yeah. Um, I know that I watched um, Patrick Willem's video recently on Terrence Malick's filmography, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of almost dissuaded me from watching some of Terrence Malick's more, more recent films. Yeah, because, I've tried to watch them all. Yeah. Um, what, what song are your to thoughts? song is <laughs> quite difficult to get through. And they just. I think there's something about the situations that he gravitated towards, like Badlands, for example. Mm-hmm. Have you seen? No, you haven't. I haven't. I need to see that in None Days of, of Heaven. Have, have you? Great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, in Days of Heaven. Like yeah. when he's choosing material like that, that is about nature, is about like these large existential questions. So like right. think about Tree of Life where there's this death in the family and war and like growing up in this really tumultuous time and stuff like that. He's at his best when he's grappling with that. Right. Not when he's like, here's some musicians in Austin. (laughs) Right. What? Yeah. The the sense I even got from like the trailers for his more recent films felt a little more self-indulgent, a little bit less grappling with like these eternal themes. Right. (laughs) Or just like a little bit harder to relate to. So even the one that was set in Hollywood, what was that one with Christian Uh, Bale? Night of Cups. Night of Cups. There you go. I watched that one. Yeah. That one also still feels like I'm not really sure that this marriage of material and filmmaker is going to like draw out some of the magic that you get from some of his right. earlier movies. I, I honestly think it's the the, his, the history part yeah. is what I love about his movies because you know the New World for example yeah. is a very romanticized version of the Pocahontas story. There's, mm-hmm. there's some issues there but there is also just the full immersion yeah. into what it would feel like in this time, in this place, in this moment. I, I just really... I don't have any other filmmaker that gives me that like full immersion experience with these moments in time. So anyway, I'm a fan. <laughs> Check it out. Awesome. I recently finished the latest season of Big Little Lies, which mm. was interesting. I felt like I learned a lot about, you know, kind of the situation around Big Little Lies where the first season was really good and it ended and it wasn't ever supposed to have another season because it was based on a book. And then they were like, this was fun. We're going to do it again now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like watching this new season, there were times where I could really feel that, like the strain, and I'm probably projecting, but the strain of the <laughs> screenwriters having to come up with another yeah. seven or eight episodes, whatever it was, worth of content. And I think it was such an interesting example to watch with that mindset because there's some things that they do really well like i think they created a really interesting antagonist they also had meryl streep play her which helps mm, a lot so so good um, <laughs> just was, cheating i just it, love i love that character cheating. yeah um but like they created the the antagonist has moments where you really understand where she's coming from and you're like oh maybe she's right like there's they introduced a lot more nuance on a short notice basically mm. the, the, more than i would expect um, but there were also times where it was really dragging and you could feel like, okay, so this is what it feels like when you're just trying to fill time and the storylines you have don't require this much screen time to wrap themselves up. And right. So it was just, it was a really, it was overall enjoyable, but really interesting to kind of watch with that mindset of like, what must it have been like to be tasked with do it again? Uh, <laughs> but yeah. there's no book, yeah. there's no book there's this time. No, right, yeah. Yeah, that's such a tricky thing. I remember watching uh, Broadchurch, the uh, the, the yeah. British mm-hmm. show. Yeah, yeah. And the first season was such a closed story. And then the second season, they said, I said, what's the second season going to be? Why would they, is it going to be a different mystery in a different town? They said, no, we're just going to continue this same story. And I thought, mm-hmm. what? And then I watched the season. I thought, ooh, this is a really interesting way that they're doing this. Hmm. Uh, and then by the third season, it was just, here's another crime that happened. That we have to, it just felt like, uh, you know, they just were, I don't yeah. know what to do now so uh so it's unfortunate sometimes you just think is your story going to be better by adding another season or not i know you want money i know you want to like make another thing but think about the big picture and yeah yeah who, yeah. who are you speaking to? All production companies? Or... Uh, specifically Alex. Okay. Yeah. Alex, just think about it. Listen, I was okay with season two because I love Meryl Streep being that mom and all these actresses being yeah. I mean, I feel like... Again. like I'm just like, fine, let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it helps. I'm sure it helps when you have like 
an entire cast of amazing performers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, like I feel like that's the reason it was like A-list, yeah. A-list watch. actors. Sure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been our episode on Ocean's Eleven. Uh, thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye everybody. Bye.